now talking to Dr. Kazi Rahman. Hi, Kazi. Hello. Well, you've you've come over from a, a busy day at King's College London. Um, marking so, exams. Marking exams. <laughs> okay. Um, so, well, it's great to have you here because, well, I mean, you're one of the leading leading scientists in this field of human sexual orientation. I mean, perhaps we should explain. I um, first came across you when, well, I know that we we do have a mutual friend, but I saw you in a documentary years ago where John John Barrowman of all people was. Uh, yes. looking looking at sexual orientation and I think probably the most interesting part of that was when he came and did some simple tests with you where certain um, certain kind of tasks like navigation, orientation, memory, um, word fluency and shape recognition and rotation and these types of things, um, gay men seem to perform similarly to heterosexual mm. women and we're not we're not quite so sure about lesbians mm. that our results are a bit more interesting. Um, and I came and did some of these tests as part of my research for my comedy show that I was writing that year back in 2009, The Science of Sex. Um, so tell us a little bit um we will get on to talking about mental health as well but but let's start with with orientation tell us a little bit about how you started to look look into this field mm. um it started oh, almost 12 or so years ago now i suppose um and um, as I alluded to earlier, research is me-search, as we say in psychology. <laughs> and as a, a gay man myself, I suppose it's, um, I'd have to be honest and say there was a certain intrigue about yeah. um, where my identity and selfhood uh, came from. And I suppose for lots of minorities, that's a, that's a question. And certainly. certainly when we talk to our LGBT youth around health issues, that's a question they sometimes ask too, although it's less at the centre of who they are, I suppose, than it was a few years ago. Um, and then, you know, with scientific training, I suppose I was interested in where sexual orientation comes from, importantly, where diversity in sexual mm. uh, orientation identities and then also a bit later on gender identities comes from yes. and yeah. what contributions biology plays to that diversity. Well, it's it's the sort of age-old debate, isn't mm. it? Um, you know, you, I, well, I actually saw you last year take part in a debate with uh, Julie Bindle and Patrick Strudwick and yeah. Stella Duffy, which all became very uh, interesting <laughs> <laughs> uh, points. Um, because Julie, of course, in her recent book, we have had her on the show talking about that. She has a chapter sort of looking at this mm. idea of whether we are indeed born gay. And mm. in fact, that is the title of a book that you co-authored yeah. a few years ago yes and um uh, i mean it was a long time ago now certainly a long time before julie's book and but mm -hmm. in a way now thinking about those two pieces together i i wonder and i often say to julie i wonder if we agree on more than we we disagree on um, <laughs> and we probably disagree more in public uh, than we do in private and yes you know well, i also I've, i found myself agreeing more and more with julie bindle like years yes. ago i thought i would never agree with her about anything and now yeah. i agree with her about tons of things yeah and I, her book really is you know a real good it's overview of, of where um, a certain generation of gay people, certainly a place in which I put myself, have, have arrived at. And mm, yeah, yeah. on the biology, though, I think I wonder if that's used as a, again, a rhetorical device to make certain claims. And yeah, whereas the biology and the science is somewhat slight, sits slightly separate to the, separately to the social and moral implications. Yeah, indeed. Um, but having said that, and this is something I grapple with, and I talk to students a lot about. I think there are some. Um, implications of the research um, in a maybe a broader LGBT rights agenda and um, mm. I think that's in that whilst the causes of uh, any behaviour shouldn't really influence what we think 
about a trait. Mm. It just so happens that the science turned out um, to be the uh, to be such that sexual orientation does have a strong biological basis. And I do wonder if mm. that component can supplement an ethical framework, can supplement a discussion yes. well, it's, around it's certainly LGBT good rights. To have that awareness and knowledge, isn't it? I think mm. what you kept emphasising in the panel with Julie was that not that there's a gay gene as such, but there mm. are genes for sexual orientation, mm. I, I think. Yes, we might even go one step back and say there are genes which make you attracted to men or genes which mm. make you attracted to women. So we don't even have to use the labels yeah. gay or, yeah. you know, there's the, there are certain fancy Latin phrases we can use, such as androphilia, which mm -hmm. is the attraction towards men or gynophilia. So we mm. can say there are genes for those things. Mm. Um, but it is, I'm interested in the, in the, in the politics and the sort of journalistic language around that. The word the gay gene doesn't seem to have gone away despite me no. banging on about <laughs> it. Seems for Five years. Well, yes, it's got. I don't know. People it's seem to like there, using, yeah. using it, and they seem to like this this idea of it. But I think, you know, what what um, in conversations I've had with you, with you in the past, what perhaps seems to be important is how it might affect how LGBT people might perhaps need to be diagnosed or treated, perhaps differently in in certain areas, perhaps. Mm. Mm. Yes, I suppose there, there is one concern is that if we find, you know, a, a cluster of biological kind of precursors that, um, you know, awful people will do awful things. Um, um, and that and that is a concern. But I will say, you know, in the couple of decades we've had this research, there hasn't been a medical test for homosexuality. There's never yeah. been a prenatal no, screening no. test. Genes are so complicated that it's hard to find genetic tests for very simple um, conditions or traits, let alone mm. things that are as complex as mm. human sexuality, personality or, or aptitudes. And what I would say is I'm, you know... Again, talking to people in the queer studies and gender studies area, I've sort of slightly, I don't know, I've become radicalised, if that's even possible. Ah. I sort of, I feel like there's something, there's something to be said for a new queer radicalism that is actually based in biology, something that says, look, this is who we are, yeah. because it's part of our human natures. Mm. Um, and so here's, you know, two fingers up to heteronormativity, really. And yes. Let's start doing something about that. Let's, to coin a phrase, start queering some of that heteronormativity by using biological understandings rather than thinking that biology is our enemy. Whereas someone like Julie, I guess, would argue that if we say, well, we're sort of, this is the way we are, we're sort of being a bit, her argument would be we're being a bit apologetic, where she, I think she strongly feels mm. um, that she chose to be a lesbian in, in some way. And that mm. that's a stronger argument for it being a positive identity rather than some than one that a lot of us kind of struggled mm. with or didn't want. And then we're kind of saying, oh, feel sorry for us. You have to give us equality. Mm. Uh, that that yeah. was her sort of take um, on yeah, it a bit, that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a version of, sort of what she might say. And, you know, that comes yeah. from... You know, long history of sort of radical feminist thought, you know, we trace yeah. it all the way back to um, Simone de Beauvoir and, you know, the second sex. It's all about the idea that, you know, womanhood and um, by uh, by inference, ma malehood as well is a social construction, is a social mm. convention. But I've never understood why that should lead to freedom. I've always thought mm. understanding some fundamentals about human nature is a better way of um, arguing for freedom than an environmental explanation, which to me always seems associated with a 
I worry about environmental explanations because they seem perfect for totalitarian regimes. You know, you can mm. manipulate people's behavior mm. by nudging them, you know, mm. is the current thing by um, putting, you know, oppressive laws or, or policy barriers in, in place. Um, so I've never really understood where the association between freed choice and environmental explanations and freedom comes in. For mm. me, there's always been a strong association b- between biology and freedom. Um, in the sense that it's part of our human nature and that guides our actions in the world. Yeah. And I think that's where Julie and I quite openly you sort of openly start to diverge. Disagree. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting, though, you say about um, sort of challenging heteronormativity because in, in many mm. ways we are becoming, as a sort of, as a group, as a kind of community, becoming much more heteronormative, mm. uh, which which was, I guess, the whole mm. premise of, of of Julie's book. But um, I, this is something I've sort mm. of uh, <laughs> often posted about on, on Facebook and so on that, that I see as a, as a little alarming, you know, in a sense, mm. obviously, you can argue for equality and, and things like same-sex marriage, but do we, do we really mm. want to, to be the same? But you're saying we could still kind of... Sp- kind of stamp our own ground in mm. a sense i agree and this is this is a fascinating kind of area that that is right for academic kind of development mm. but also you know social commentary like this and i agree and by no means are these arguments resolved and no. we should have them but i completely agree i i come from a generation you know where um we you know we were just winning some of those struggles and, and dealing with some of the oppressions we faced and but i wonder if you know, we it honed us somewhat having gone through that too. And I now talking to LGBT youth, certainly when we talk about um, the gay community itself, and we talk a lot about some of our youth talk a great deal about how inhospitable gay subcultures, some gay subcultures have become to diversity. Ah. Um, and I do wonder if that yeah. is in a cruel twist of fate, a consequence of the fact that um, more equality, which is absolutely vital. Yeah. And I'll say a few words about that later on. Has this other flip side, which is that we become more like heterosexuals and perhaps we do become strangely homonormative and therefore less tolerant of the diversity that used to be the Ooh. source of our strength wow. in those years of oppression. And, you know, I think there's a lot of academic and social discussion to be had about that. And I hope mm. we can just keep on talking about it, really. So you, can, you mean become more, more divisive in, in the sense of accepting trans or racial diversity, yeah, disability? Tra- yeah, all those intersections, um, mm. just diversity also within um, traditional sexual orientation categories. So if you think about, for example... Um, this well, we've, we've often long been suspicious of bisexuality haven't we um, yes you know lesbians yeah. and gay men have. yeah yeah and also just gender diversity within yeah. sexual orientation yeah. so um you know the um uh, feminine gay men versus masculine yes. gay men let's yes. say that being on a dimension and yes. you know i won't mention certain celebrities at this point because i think that's <laughs> been done done to death but there's yes. a certain amount of you know i think as as lgbt people we probably do need to also start challenging ourselves around some of our inwardly directed stigma Um, we might call it self-hatred i think that's quite a strong word to use but you know that we do tend to internalize some of these these sort of stigma signals that we get from outside and we probably just need to reflect on that a bit Mm. well let's um sort of move on to another area that you're looking into a lot at the moment the area of lgbt mental health um why is it? I mean, it, I think there are a lot of stats that, mm. that back up a case for the fact that there is a huge problem mm. in, in this area, particularly within our community. Yeah. Um, do, are there p- 
particularly alarming statistics and, and what what is yeah. the reason yeah so this? it's a good question i mean and it took i should say it took a while for researchers to understand the size of the problem partly because health surveys um you know 10 or even 20 or so years ago even um uh, didn't really ask people about their sexual orientation. You know, that's only started mm. relatively recently. And also, understandably, people have been concerned um, with pathologizing homosexuality again by associating it yes. with mental ill health. Uh, so, yes, you know, yes, this, of course. It, it is a real challenge. Yeah. But certainly by the time I finished my PhD quite a while ago, now several large studies were showing that LGBT people are roughly about twice as likely as heterosexuals to suffer from what we call common mental health problems. And those are things like depression, anxiety, um, suicidal um, thoughts, ideation, and also substance um, use um, yes. disorders. And we have lots of good evidence. Does that include alcohol? Yes, it yeah. includes alcohol, drug use, illicit yeah. drug use, those kinds of things. Yes. Um, and we know that pretty clearly now, so it's certainly from Western studies in the US here, um, in the rest of um, Europe. Um, so we have clear evidence of that. I think what we've been trying to do is turn our attention now to the reasons for yeah. um, those disparities. And what have you been finding? Well, we, we were just starting. Funding is always an issue in this okay. area, as we know. Minority um, yes. mental health is not necessarily a priority. And mm -hmm. again, one of the sort of myths that we hear is um, not necessarily uh, from health professionals, um, uh, but to some extent, the people who run the levers, if you like, of, of financial decisions is, you know, well, kind of what's the problem? You know, you guys have rights now, you know, you can get married <laughs> as if that should, you know, wash away um, all these issues. And I think, well, I, I would say arguably for many people, perhaps for some of the sort of heteronormativity and some of the reasons we've just talked about. For some people, uh, I'm getting a real sense uh, among people I'm talking to of, of mental health decreasing mm -hmm. with these sort of apparent um, progressive, mm -hmm. um, you know, battles that have been won in a legal mm -hmm. sense. I sort of had a bit of a debate on my Facebook wall where one woman posted, I feel less and less able to be who I actually am, mm -hmm. which I thought mm -hmm. that really doesn't feel like yeah. liberation, does it? Yeah, and I, I think you know, social structural changes are important. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want no. to sort of take away from that. But they they tend to be very protracted, and so therefore their benefits are are less obviously seen. And you know, we've had major cultural shifts happen over the last decade. But yeah, for some reason, we still have this very persistent, um, you know, increased rate of mental health problems in LGBT people. So something isn't working. Something yeah. something isn't right. And it just might be that those. The benefits of those policy shifts has yet to yes, kind of wash it, out. It often takes time to you know. catch up, doesn't it? The sort of societal yeah. implications yeah. of what a legal change yeah. has has brought about. Yeah, absolutely. But if we look at countries which have had it for a while, Holland and Denmark yeah. is the same. We, we, you know, we're still getting pretty much the same rates of um, poorer mental health in those populations Are we? too. That is so, interesting. Um, you know, some of that data is a bit dodgy. You know, we, we snapshot people at certain times, so okay. we can't be sure that it's people... Um, unusual populations for example or there's something perhaps unusual about the modern world in particular that is producing these high statistics but there does seem to be a you know cross-national consistency in the in the findings um mm. here so i suppose one clear reason for the disparities rather obvious is is just stigma is discrimination yeah. and stigma um and and by that there are two ways in which stigma can um impact on poorer mental health one is structurally through laws um, and policies which deny lgbt individuals equality resources yeah. and opportunities those sorts of things but most of us you know would associate poorer mental health with a more day-to-day 
experiences of discrimination such as um, overt prejudice, violent experiences of violence. Yes, yes, which um, still happens yeah, a which, great deal. Which still does happen, yeah. but also yeah. being treated unfairly um, or internalising stigma in our, in on ourselves mm. um, and also managing our identities, you know, yeah. being on the lookout for rejection, being on the lookout for, oh, am I, am I revealing leaking cues to my sexual orientation in a perhaps a context I'm not so happy with, say, work or, yes. um, you know, among, say, people you don't know, those kinds of things. Um, mm. And I suppose what we've been trying to do is under, un, sort of unpack how this, what we might call structural stigma, we might call it heteronormativity, we can call it a number of things, gets under the skin and promotes psychological distress in some LGBT individuals, um, but not necessarily others. Because, of course, not all LGBT people will suffer no, from no. poorer mental health. And one of the challenges for psychology as a science is to try to understand why some people are more resilient to the the push and pull of the world um, while others are not.